Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. The demons that tormented the people of history were considered to be angels cast out of heaven for defying God. And while the stories of demonic possessions have lessened as we moved into modern times, perhaps they now have just taken a different form. This raises the question, Are historical accounts of the demons who possessed bodies, witches who stole children in the night, and vampires who sucked blood and devastated livestock the same phenomena as the reported aliens abducting and replacing people today? You're going to meet Susanna and Jake, a young couple who finally found their dream house after many grueling years of saving and searching, only to discover the picturesque neighborhood is truly out of this world. I'd like you to accompany me on a voyage through imagination, a place that lies just between shadow and light, where the truth is sometimes stranger than the fiction. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. In pop culture, the term UFO or unidentified flying object, it refers to suspected alien aircraft. Although the definition really encompasses any unexplained aerial phenomena, UFO sightings have been really reported around the world, recorded through history. You know, that raises questions about life on other planets and whether extraterrestrials have visited Earth. You know, this topic has become a major subject of interest and inspiration for numerous films and books. These stories took off in popularity right around the end of World War II. The first well-known UFO sighting occurred in 1947 when a guy named Kenneth Arnold said he saw a group of nine high-speed objects near Mount Rainer in Washington while flying his small plane. He said these objects were crescent-shaped, and they moved at several thousand miles per hour. He was actually quoted saying they were like saucers skipping on water. In the newspaper report that followed that, it was mistakenly stated that the objects were saucer-shaped, hence the term flying saucer. You know what else happened in 1947? 
That was when rancher Mac Brazel came across a mysterious 200-yard-long wreckage near an army airfield in Roswell, New Mexico. The local papers around there reported that it was the remains of a flying saucer. The U.S. military issued a statement saying that it was just a weather balloon, though the newspaper photograph suggested otherwise. In 2013, actually, the CIA declassified documents that officially acknowledged for the first time that Area 51 actually is a secret military site. But rather than being the host of actual flying saucers or alien life, they stated Area 51 was used to test the U-2 and Oxcart area surveillance programs, according to the documents at least. The need for secrecy was to keep information from the Soviets rather than to cover up an actual alien encounter, it said. Right, and my name is Christopher Feinstein. Wait. And the flames of conspiracy were further fanned in the 1950s, when dummies with latex skin and aluminum bones that looked really like aliens fell from the sky across New Mexico and were hurriedly picked up by military vehicles. To those who believed in the earlier Roswell sightings, this seemed like a government cover-up. For the Air Force, these dummy drops were a way to test new ways for pilots to survive falls. Fifty years later, though, the military issued a subsequent statement, admitting that the Roswell wreckage was part of Project Mogul, a top-secret atomic espionage project. My question is, why every so often do they come out with a new excuse about what that was? It's like, no, actually, we were just kidding. It, it was something different. Again. This time. UFOs aren't the only things to come to mind when you think of aliens. You know, contact events, such as abductions, are often associated with UFOs, because they are ascribed to extraterrestrial visitors, obviously. However, the credibility for most abduction stories are, are highly disputed by most psychologists who have investigated the phenomenon. They suggest that it's a common experience known as sleep paralysis, and that may be the culprit behind it. You know, this causes sleepers to experience a temporary immobility and the belief that they are being watched. But, according to the United States Navy, UFOs are real. The U.S. Navy just acknowledged that three clips of declassified military footage released between 2017 and 2018 are actually unidentified aerial phenomena. Their words, not mine. In 2010, seven former U.S. Air Force personnel described their personal encounters with UFO sightings over nuclear weapon facilities in incidents in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Three of those former Air Force officers said that UFOs hovered over nuclear missile silos around Montana's Maelstrom Air Force Base in 1967, causing problems with the military base. Former Air Force Captain Roger Salas, nope, that's not his name, it's Robert Salas, not Roger, said that one of his guards told him about a red glowing object, about 30 feet in diameter, hovering above the front gate of the facility. At least they're polite. I mean, they waited to be let in, I guess. And just as I called my commander, our missiles began to going into what's called a no-go condition, or unlaunchable. Essentially, they were disabled while this object was still hovering over our site, Captain Salas is quoted saying in the document. You know, Salas said he personally didn't witness any UFOs, but Robert Hastings, an author and UFO researcher who organized the press conference, said the series of stories showed aliens had a particular interest in nuclear weapons. I believe, these gentlemen believe, that this planet is being visited by beings from another world, who for whatever reason have taken an interest in the nuclear arms race which began at the end of World War II, said Hastings. In March of 1997, 
a number of Arizona residents said they witnessed a large flying object in the sky near Phoenix. Ten years later, former Arizona Governor Fief Symington wrote on CNN about the experience ahead of an event discussing various UFO sightings and incidents. It's articles like this that I have no doubt why people put on tinfoil hats. I witnessed a massive delta-shaped aircraft silently navigate over Squaw Peak, a mountain range in Phoenix, Arizona. It was truly breathtaking. I was absolutely stunned because I was turning to the west looking for the distant Phoenix lights, Symington wrote. To my astonishment, this apparition appeared. This dramatically large, very distinctive leading edge with some enormous lights was traveling through the Arizona sky. Symington, who was a former Air Force officer, said it did not look like a man-made object. And he ruled out the Air Force assertion that the object was high-altitude flares. I was never happy with the Air Force's silly explanation, he said. There very might have well been military flares in the sky that evening, but what I and hundreds of others saw had nothing to do with that. Symington thanked those who were speaking out about the mysterious encounters and called for the U.S. government to be more open about what really happened. We want the government to stop putting out stories that perpetuate the myth that all UFOs can be explained away in down-to-earth conventional terms. Investigations need to be reopened, documents need to be unsealed, and the idea of an open dialogue can no longer be shunned, he wrote. The story of Betty and Barney Hill isn't the first report of an abduction, but it is the most famous. Is this thing chasing us? You know, that's the thought that must have coursed through Betty and Barney Hill's minds as they drove down the empty, winding country road up in New Hampshire. It was a September night in 1961, and they hadn't seen a car for miles, and a strange light in the sky seemed to be following them. When they finally got home to Portsmouth at dawn, they were far from relieved. They felt dirty. Their watches stopped working. Barney's shoes were strangely scuffed, and Betty's dress was ripped. There were two hours of their drive that neither one of them could remember. What happened? With the help of a psychiatrist, the quiet couple eventually revealed a startling story. Gray beings with large eyes had walked them into a metallic disc as wide, Betty said, as her house was long. Once inside, the beings began to examine the couple, and they erased their memories. Their experience would kick off an Air Force inquiry, part of a secret initiative, Project Blue Book, that investigated UFO sightings across the country. The incident would also become the first ever widely publicized alien abduction account and shape how stories like it were told. Debates continue as to whether the husband and wife were liars, fantasists, crackpots, or simply sleep-deprived people who later recovered seriously scrambled memories. The Hills' road trip was spontaneous, a well-earned break that Barney decided the couple needed, as explained in The Interrupted Journey, a 1966 book they collaborated on with author John G. Fuller. Barney worked a grueling night shift at the post office, driving 60 miles each way. And as someone who drives 66 miles each way to work, I can relate, Barney. There have definitely been times I wish something would abduct me. And Betty's job was no picnic either. She had to handle state child welfare cases. The little free time this biracial couple had was devoted to their church and activities related to civil rights. After 16 months of marriage, Betty and Barney saw this trip through Montreal and Niagara Falls as their delayed honeymoon. They left so impulsively that they had no time to go to the bank before it closed for the weekend. Imagine a time when banks closed on the weekends crazy. They got in their car with less than $70 in their pockets. On the last night of their three-day trip, 
the couple sipped coffee in a Vermont diner to recharge before driving back. Barney figured if they pushed through, they could beat the wind and the rains from an approaching hurricane. They left the diner around 10 p.m., estimating they could reach their red farmhouse in Portsmouth, New Hampshire between 2 and 3 a.m., the latest. As they drove, the strange light in the sky gave another reason to hurry. At first, it looked like a falling star, but it grew larger and brighter with each mile. Barney, who was an avid plane watcher and World War II vet, was sure they had nothing to worry about. The light, they said, seemed to move with the car as Barney steered down the curving mountain road. The light zigged and zagged, ducking past the moon and behind trees and mountain ranges, only to reappear moments later. Sometimes it seemed to move toward them in the game of, like, cat and mouse it was playing. Had to be an illusion. They thought maybe the car's movement made it seem like the light, too, was moving. But curiosity eventually overcame them. The couple pulled over at a road stop and picnic turnout to get a closer look. Through binoculars, Betty saw that the white object was really spinning in the air. Barney, she told her husband, if you think that's a satellite or a star, you're being completely ridiculous. That was the 60s equivalent of something nowadays that would be much harsher. He knew he was right. Barney had an IQ of 140, noted by Fuller in his book. Barney was also a pragmatic man. He wouldn't give flying saucers a second thought, remembered by his niece Kathleen Maiden in her work, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill experience. The night was too quiet for a helicopter, a commercial plane, or even a military jet with a hotshot pilot. He didn't want to spook Betty, but he was becoming concerned. What was this light, and why was it toying with them? About 70 miles past their stop at the diner, the object hovered just above the treetops, roughly 100 feet above them. Barney abruptly stopped the car, keeping the engine running. He shoved a handgun he'd hidden beneath his seat into his pocket and rushed into the dark field, leaving Betty in the car. What he saw was as big as a jet and as round and flat as a pancake. My God, what is this thing, he recalled thinking. This can't be real. Put that into perspective. You're being followed by an aircraft or something in the sky. And what do you do? You reach under the seat and grab the old trusty six-shooter and dart into the woods to face it off. It really was an entirely different generation. Behind rows of windows, gray uniformed beings seemed to look right at him, Barney recalled. He tried to lift his hand to his pistol, but somehow couldn't. A voice told him not to put down the binoculars. He then had a startling thought. We're about to be captured. Yelling hysterically, he ran back to the car and barreled down the road as Betty tracked the craft, craning her head outside the car's window. Without explanation, loud rhythmic beeps sounded from the car's trunk. The couple felt instantly drowsy and lost consciousness. They came to around two hours later and 35 miles down the road. Once back home in Portsmouth, they tried to make sense of the night. Barney felt compelled to examine his body's lower half. Both seemed aware of a puzzling presence. In the weeks and months after, Betty, who was an avid reader, checked out books from the library, discovering the Civilian UFO Group, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. She also reported the sighting to the Air Force, worried about radiation. In the coming years, with Betty suffering from disturbing dreams and Barney developing an ulcer and anxiety, the couple sought mental help. The two met with Benjamin Simon, a psychiatrist and neurologist who specialized in hypnosis, which at the time was a mainstream technique 
and less of a scam to try to get you to quit smoking. Through months of weekly sessions, Simon helped the couple piece together what they think happened. A vessel had landed on the hill's car, put them to sleep, and afterwards gray beings walked them up a long ramp and into a spacecraft. Once inside, the hills were separated, taking turns in an examination room that had curved walls and a large light hanging from the ceiling. Each was asked to climb up on a metal table. The table was so short, Barney's legs hung over the side, he remembers. During the examinations, the beings removed Betty and Barney's clothing, plucked strands of their hair, took clippings of their nails, and scraped their skin. Each sample was placed on a clear material, not unlike glass. Needles connecting to long wires probed their heads, arms, legs, and spines. One large needle, around six inches long, was inserted into Betty's belly. This pregnancy test left her twisting in pain. Throughout, a being Barney and Betty called the leader watched from the side. After Betty's examination, the beings rushed back into their room, excited. They discovered that Barney's teeth could be removed. Betty laughed, explaining that Barney had dentures, a fact of human aging the beings really struggled to understand, they said. Later, alone with the leader, Betty asked where the craft had flown, admitting she knew little of the universe. She said the being joked with her, saying, if you don't know where you are, there wouldn't be any point in telling you where I am. In 1965, the Hill story was picked up by a Boston newspaper. After that, everything changed. The quiet couple's story became the subject of a best-selling book and movie starring James Earl Jones. The UFO incident, if you're interested. The full movie is actually up on YouTube. It's not great. The upstanding civil servants had become celebrity abductees. Like I said, the Hills weren't the first to spot a UFO, or even the first to report an abduction. But their story did capture the nation's imagination and was so widely publicized. It has helped shape how we look at alien encounters and abductions, even to this day. Before the Hill story, alien encounters were friendly, according to Christopher Botter, a professor of sociology at California's Chapman University. Some aliens lived on Earth and commuted back on weekends. But once the Hill story became better known, abduction accounts shared certain characteristics, such as medical examinations and missing time. Aliens with large heads and big eyes, dubbed greys in UFO circles, became classic sci-fi staples in personal accounts and in pop culture. Close encounters of the third kind and shows like The X-Files, for example. Some believe that Hill's story was simply a myth in the making with supernatural meetings, vulnerable protagonists, and otherworldly journeys that are often the hallmarks of a great legend. Many point to the stress of being an interracial couple living in a predominantly white state during a turbulent era. You have a biracial couple at the time where, obviously, it was not easy to be a biracial couple. And just look at the aliens they described. Greys, a mixture of black and white. I find that very meaningful. Abductee stories, in general depend on first-hand accounts, the most vulnerable form of evidence. Memories can be distorted by stress or distraction, or even manufactured. When a false memory is in place, psychologists say the brain works to fill in the details. Past experience also shapes human perception. Barney was a World War II vet, and is recorded saying that he thought the head gray looked like Hitler and seemed menacing. Betty, meanwhile, who had been excited to see the aliens, bantered with the affable Grey, who performed her medical examination. That alien even agreed to give her a book to bring with her to Earth, though other crew members would later overrule that decision, she said. 
The National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena's head scientist cross-examined the couple and found their account credible. The Air Force's Project Blue Book would ultimately dismiss the story, though, determining the unexplained craft could be explained by natural causes, hinting that the couple hadn't actually seen a spacecraft, but only the planet Jupiter. For his part, psychiatrist Simon never felt the Hills made up their story. He concluded Betty had dreamed the abduction, and Barney had absorbed her story, especially since many of her most vivid details matched descriptions of dreams Betty had jotted down after the event. I believe implicitly in the honesty of these people, he said on a 70s radio program. You know, of course, another explanation is always possible. The abduction actually occurred. The Hills stuck by their story, despite years of skeptics and detractors. Like many abductees, the couple never felt false memory or sleep paralysis explained what they experienced. Betty became a known voice in UFO research and claimed she was visited multiple times in the decades that followed. Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Susanna and Jake Reed were your average young American couple. They had their entire future in front of them. After marriage, they decided that the house they were renting wasn't cutting it anymore. It was a cute little ranch, but little was putting it lightly. And yeah, it currently was only them, but they dreamed of having a family and wanted something bigger. They found a neighborhood nearby was constructing brand new townhomes, and they couldn't wait to see what new construction had to offer. This was something right up Jake's alley. While he was handy when he needed to be, he had his heart set on not needing to be, if you catch my drift. He didn't want the headache. Listen, you can't blame the guy. He worked hard and had a hell of a commute on his hands. Over 60 miles, one way. If I'm being honest, his commute was the hardest part of his job, but people don't realize how much sitting in the car for sometimes over two hours, depending on traffic, can wear you down even after the easiest of days. Unfortunately, as things sometimes have a way of going, the building of their new home was met with delay after delay. Eventually, the pair got fed up and decided to look elsewhere. Fortunately, 
It was a buyer's market, and homes were in abundance. Not realizing how much of a buyer's market it was, their search went on a little bit longer than expected. They fell in love with a few homes, and so did a dozen other people. They lost out on quite a few. Heartbreak after heartbreak. Disappointment after disappointment. They were starting to give up hope. One weekend, they decided to take a break from house hunting and just enjoy the weekend. It was early summer, and the day was turning out to be one of those days that really stick in the back of your memory. Not for any particular reason, other than for how beautiful it was. The air was warm and sweet, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Sitting outside to have some morning coffee, Susanna got an alert on her realtor app that a new house in your area was recently added. Opening the app, they saw that this house was literally the one they've been waiting for. A huge wraparound porch, big backyard with a pool, four bedrooms, plenty of space for a family to grow into. And it was on a dead-end double cul-de-sac. It's been active on the app for two hours and already had 500 saves and thousands of views. The house was in a neighborhood that was a little bit further out of the way and would add on to Jake's already long commute. But he reminded his wife of his palatial estate clause. If they found a house that was big, in their price range, and checked all of their boxes, then he would suffer the drive knowing that's what he was coming home to. And you know what? They were having an open house today, and it started in 30 minutes. They quickly rushed over. Pulling up to the house took their breath away. The street was picturesque. There was only about 10 other houses that lined the street that made up the double cul-de-sac, and theirs was all the way at the end of the main road that led to it, sitting on the corner with only one other house directly across from it. If you were looking at this little neighborhood from the sky, it would look like a perfect capital T. The streets were tree-lined, and all the houses had beautifully maintained landscaping. Upon stepping out of their car, they noticed how quiet the neighborhood was. Not a sound except for the chirping of the birds in the trees. You could faintly hear the traffic coming off the main drag that the street fell off of, but that was only if you really focused on it. They made their way to the front door and rang the bell. After a short wait, the seller, who was acting as his own real estate agent, opened the door and greeted them. They began their tour and just made small talk while the elderly man talked about his life in this home. It was way too much house for an older couple. Their kids have grown and moved on with their own lives, and it was time for them to enjoy retirement. They started with the outside and gazed upon the pool, and both had visions of family barbecues and parties on the deck overlooking it. They thought of the kids they someday would have and the pictures they would take of them on their porch as they got them ready for their proms and graduations. During the tours of the bedrooms, they came upon the door in the smaller bedroom that looked like a closet, but once opened, it led to an area that was above the attached garage. It was like a secret room that Jake visioned turning into a movie theater. It was currently set up like an extra bedroom, with a pull-out couch and bunk beds. They noticed that the windows were blacked out, and the entire room was soundproofed. The owner told them that they used it if someone needed some sleep, or a daytime nap, and they needed it extra quiet. Neither Susanna or Jake could have pictured this neighborhood as noisy. You could hear a pin drop out there, but maybe these people were really light sleepers. Either way, if they got this house, the soundproofing will definitely be welcome when Jake makes his theater. They put in an offer as soon as they got back to their car. And as luck would have it, their offer was accepted by late that afternoon. They couldn't believe it. After almost a year of striking out, they finally hit a home run. Their closing date was set for the end of summer, and they couldn't wait to move in. They made all the arrangements they needed to make, bought some new furniture. They only had enough of their own stuff to fill two rooms. 
set up their utilities, and tortured their families until they agreed to help them move. They moved in the day after Labor Day. The first night in your own home, a home that you scrimped and saved for, is like nothing I can ever put into words. That night for them was absolute bliss. That first morning was also very special. They woke up and made coffee and brought some folding chairs out onto the porch and sat outside and basked in the warmth and beauty of their new neighborhood. The absolute quiet was something they thought they'd never get used to. Nothing but the buzzing of insects and the chirping of birds. Family stopped in all throughout their first day, and their day was over in a flash. That night, they curled up on the couch to watch some TV and have some dinner. Their new dining room table hadn't arrived yet. It was approaching 9.30 when they noticed the floodlight in their backyard turn on through the windows that bookended the TV across from their sofa. They didn't think anything of it, really. Well, Susanna didn't. Jake grew up in the city, and he wasn't used to animals running amok around the house. Susanna assured her husband that there was probably a raccoon or a possum. The light went out shortly after it came on, and they continued watching their show. Until the light came back on, and the glow seeped in from below the blinds. Jake stood up and slowly made his way to the window to peek out into the yard. Before he got to the window, the house began to vibrate. Like somebody started an enormous silent motor in the room they were sitting in. Jake hurried up to get to the window. He grabbed the pull string and gave it a yank just as the sound of a leaf blower began to wail from across the street. Jake and Susanna brought their attention from the back to the front, and it's a good thing they did. If they actually looked out the back window, they would have seen it. A tall, pale figure that's head would have been around Jake's chest even though the window sat four feet above the ground outside. Its huge, unblinking black eyes staring into the window at the couple sitting on the couch. The noise from across the street made this thing scurry away. Jack and Susanna shared the same thought when they heard it switch on. Is this guy kidding? Now you're going to do this? It's almost 10 o'clock at night. On a Wednesday. They both peeked out the front window and spotted the guy who lived across the street from them leaf-blowing his driveway. The odd thing was there were no leaves on the ground. They were still about a month away from that to start happening. The days turned to weeks, and the daytime quiet was quite the contrast to what went on out here at night. It wasn't every night, but at random ones through the week. And it wasn't just the guy across the street, either. It seemed to be everyone in this neighborhood. A leaf blower, car work in the driveway, even all-night barbecues. It wasn't just for an hour or two here and there, either. This was all night. Who knew it took seven or eight hours to leaf blow a driveway? Didn't these people want to be in bed? At first, Jake didn't want to cause a confrontation. He hadn't met any of his neighbors during the day, and he definitely hadn't met any at night. He didn't want their first introduction to be him yelling at his neighbors about his lack of sleep. His morning commutes were starting to get the best of him, as his sleep at night began to get less and less. Finally, on an early October evening, the couple had enough. Jake decided he was going to go say something. It was 5 after 10 when the guy across the street fired up his lawnmower, and Jake jumped up, threw on a hoodie in his boots, and marched across the street. Susanna tried to stop him, but Jake wasn't hearing it. Hey! He shouted as he stomped his way down his walkway and across the road. Hey! Enough is enough, man! This is bullshit! But the neighbor cut him off with a hey of his own, and a question that completely baffled Jake. Hey, will you take the Tuesday of next week? I got something going on in the morning, and I gotta at least get a few hours rest. Jake was completely dumbfounded. 
So much so that the anger that had been building up in him for weeks seemed to drain out of his body all at once. What? Next Tuesday? What are you talking about? Your shift. We've been picking up extra since you moved in, being you're the new folks and all, but... Jake's face had a blank look across it. But you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, do you? No, none, Jake said frankly. Bob didn't explain it to you when you guys closed? I'm Phil, by the way. Explain what? Nice to meet you, Jake. About what goes on in this neighborhood? The visitors? Jake just stared, getting increasingly agitated. From up there, Phil pointed up into the sky. Old Bob said it started in the 60s, hovering saucers and tall things peeking in windows. Supposedly, they even took the kid who lives down in the Gleason house. That's the raised ranch down at the other end of the cul-de-sac. The kid came back a week or so later with his head all scrambled. He was never right after that. As more of the local area turned from woodlands into suburbs, they got a little less brazen with their visits. Bob was the one that figured out that they were skittish about activity. I guess they didn't want to be seen. He was the one who came up with the nightly chores. It keeps us safe. You look tired. Are you not using your blackout room? We all have them. With that, Jake just turned around and headed back to the house in a huff. As he was making his way up the stairs, Phil shouted, You're still on for next Tuesday, right? Jake? Jake just shouted, Yeah, whatever. That's great, pal. Welcome to the neighborhood. Phil shouted back. What was that about? Susanna asked. You're never going to believe this. Jake began to tell the story to his wife about how the neighborhood gets visited by a little green man, as the guy Phil put it. He was playing with me, making a jerk out of me. The next few nights were mostly quiet, and Tuesday came. Jake didn't think twice about what Phil said to him. Well, he did think about it, just to make himself angry. He didn't think about it seriously, I should say. That night, at around 11 o'clock, that vibrating started again, but there was no sound that accompanied it like last time. No leaf blower, no lawnmower, nothing. The only noise was coming from the bag of old-school Jiffy Pop Susanna was making on the stove. In fact, the frogs and crickets actually hushed also. Some nights you couldn't even sit and watch TV with how loud those things were. When they noticed that, that's when the floodlights in the yard came on again. Jake, feeling like maybe he was being played with, ran out onto his deck to see if maybe the neighbors were having a laugh at their expense. When he stepped out into the chill night air, the blood rushed out of his limbs. There was a tall, stick-thin man standing in his yard, with its face almost pressed up against the window to his living room. Susanna followed him out asking, Is it a raccoon? That's when the thing took notice. It shifted its body in the direction in a flash, not turning its head, but twisting its torso, keeping its feet facing the house. It had no face just two oversized owl eyes like two big ink blots throwing reflection from the floodlight. The motion light then shut off and when it blinked back on again the creature was stepping onto the deck. The couple retreated into the house with Susanna screaming. The vibration began to get more intense and every window seemed to flood with light. They ran to the front door to get out that way but as soon as they opened the door one of those things was stepping onto the front porch taking all five steps in one stride. Over its head, before they rushed back inside and slammed the door, they noticed the lights in the sky. It looked like the air was on fire in a small cloud above the neighbor's house. As they made their about-face, they heard the sliding door to the back deck shatter. They had no choice but to run upstairs. Once at the top, they heard the sounds of footsteps following. 
They ran into the bedroom right above the steps and swung the door closed behind them and ran into the so-called blackout room and closed and locked that door behind them. They cowered together in the corner of the room, light pouring in from under the door as they heard the first door open. Then they heard the unexpected, the blaring sound from their smoke alarm. They completely forgot about the popcorn. The figures were standing outside the door, the shadows of their feet blocking out the light from entering banging on the door, the knob frantically twisting as it shakes in its jam with each bang. Boom. Boom. One more good shot is all it needed, and that door was coming off that hinge. But all at once it stopped. The shadows under the door faded, and the light went dim. The sound of an approaching fire truck now filled the air. After a lecture from the firemen about the dangers of falling asleep with the stove on, they made their leave with only minimal damage to their backsplashing cabinets. They wanted to replace them anyway. There was also a tree outside that they didn't like the lean of. Overnight woodworking is as good a hobby as any. Again, I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin McLeod.